The Tom Woods Show, episode 1941. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Hello, everyone. This is Stefan Kinsella. Not the dulcet tones of Tom Woods' mellifluous voice that you're used to hearing. As his listeners know, he's out sick right now and asked me to guest host for him for a couple of days. And as you know, if you've been meaning to get around to supporting Tom's show, the right time is probably now when it's most urgently needed. So go to supportinglisteners.com. So today I'm going to be talking to Shane Hazel. Hey, Shane, how you doing? You're not Tom Woods. I'm not Tom Woods. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm good, brother. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Just got back from Freedom Fest and had a blast there and having a great time. Um some of the listeners may know me. I've been on Tom's show a few times, and Tom and I are longtime friends and uh, Mises Institute libertarian colleagues, and so that's why I'm doing this show today. So uh, why don't you tell us about yourself, Shane, and then we'll get into uh, some of the issues Tom was curious about. Sure. My name's Shane Hazel. I run the podcast Radical, and I guess of note, I am lately known for the libertarian that spoiled the U.S. Senate race up here for the Republicans in Georgia, um, the guy that sent it to a runoff and did it on purpose without spending a dime in a race where I think we garnered somewhere around 115,000 votes and to be called everything under the sun and, and to get all the, the hate mail and everything. I think that's probably what's been around, but, uh, you know, past includes being a, uh, a Marine and seeing this thing that I've termed after reading the anti-federalists, they called it the aristocratic combination I coined, I guess, the term murder cult because I just didn't think the aristocratic combination went far enough in describing these guys. So you got the hate mostly from Trump voters. I guess you could tell them, hey, you should have voted libertarian and we would have had a good libertarian in the Senate and you would have voted with the Republicans on the right things anyway, right? Yeah, well, that's the thing. We can outright the right, we can out left the left. And, you know, everybody that's like, well, libertarians can't win. Well, if everybody that said that, you know, voted libertarian, we'd win, right? And at the end of the day... We're not trying to gain power, I don't think, in the Libertarian Party. And I think it's a kind of a fool's errand at this point, not to quote Scott Horton, but the idea that the chairs of power should be libertarian is far cry from, you know, I'm an anarchist. So it's like, how do we empower people? How do we decentralize in the most efficient? And um, can I wake up enough people just to say, hey, you got to leave us alone? we're done paying your silly taxes and you're done taking our life, liberty, and property. So if I can you know, wake up a small percentage of people that can push back enough and change culture, that's, that's really my goal at the end of the day. Yeah, and I, I want to get into your story. Uh, before we do so, I want to say your name is great because it's easy to spell and pronounce, but it's rare enough where it's easy to find, right? I guess so, yeah. Hazel is not a, a very common name and, and I guess Shane is a, a little, I guess not quite mainstream out there and never has been. Right. So you're not like a John Smith, so people can find you. Uh, we were talking before we started recording. I'd seen one of your uh, podcast episodes, and I was going to ask you, so it's about anonymity and like the importance of uh, anonymous free speech, which I agree with you about. But you spelled it anonymity, and I wasn't sure if that was a typo or on purpose, because it was clever and serendipitous either way, but anonymity. Was that on purpose? You know, man, I'm a, I'm a Marine. Like I said, man, we okay. eat crayons, brother. So the fact that there's even a podcast going on is a miracle in itself. So. Well, you have a typo in there, but it's a good one because it's like anonymity because you were criticizing some of the people that 
are anonymous and they use it to support the state and to basically uh, bully and uh, threaten people from behind the wall of anonymity. <laughs> exactly right. And just recently, this all popped up because of a squabble between some veterans here. And it's just, I have no compunction with people being anonymous online. Really, I think it's you know one of our last ways to push back against this behemoth that is the out-of-control propaganda arm of this murder cult and to be able to put their words or videos or whatever they want to do out there anonymously, we have to have, it's a right. It's not a privilege. I think it's a right. And I think where the social media platforms fall will be, you know, trying to make sure that everybody's got an ID to post things out there in the interwebs and people are going to start moving to blockchain type social media. I don't know if you guys have heard or Tom's uh, audience has heard of Hive, but Hive blockchain social media is out there. It's decentralized and they've got everything from 3Speak, which is like YouTube, to PD, which I think is more like Facebook, and BuzzD, which is more like Twitter. It's something that I think the Libertarian Party and people who are in the liberty movement need to start considering moving towards because it's immutable. It shares all the, the premises of any other type of you know, major blockchain out there. And as they start cracking down and trying to control more and more of our lives and what you can and can't say, that's going to be extremely important for us. So you are a Marine, which is interesting. I think I heard one of your episodes and you were talking about how you basically had a conversion from federalism or constitutionalism to anti-federalism, like on the battlefield or something like that. Did I hear that correctly? Um, not quite that fast. I was in Fallujah in 04, the uh, November battle. It was the second battle. And one of my buddies had set uh, this book on my bed in what's called the Mech, the base off of Fallujah there. I don't know, it was close to December, maybe late Thanksgiving timeframe. And I started pouring through this book by John Taylor Gatto, Weapons of Mass Instruction. And it just opened my eyes, you know, being a 30-year veteran of the New York school system and absolutely railing against the school system while receiving the accolades of teacher of the year multiple years in a row because of the students. They loved what he did. They loved how he engaged with them and he loved what they taught. And to have that epiphany where you're reading about how the American system was adopted from the Prussian system from like Thorndike and Dewey and Van Hoomph and Ford brought it over here and Carnegie, you know, helped to spread this idea that we should have centralization of government indoctrination so that when, you know, they need to go off and turn the knobs, work in the factories and all that, you got, you know, smart enough people to do that. But then when the state needs you to go off and shed blood for your quote unquote country and freedom and all that nonsense, you've got these great little soldiers, man, that just, you know, pick right up. They feel, you know, like they're doing a great thing uh, and God's work for their country and they run off overseas and you know the rest. We've been at war for my entire adult lifetime. And so to have that epiphany that I was a cog and that I was doing something for this unholy alliance where I'd been indoctrinated since I was five years old and I had never heard it before, that's when I started to question things. And that's when I knew I needed to kind of go out to the drawing board and being a constitutionalist, you know, came later, you know, that was kind of where I thought I would find bedrock. And mm -hmm. then I found the anti-federalist. And then you find Lysander Spooner. And then you start finding the greats over at the Mises Institute, like Rothbard and Hayek and the rest of the great economists. And you're sitting there going, man, to, to have any hope of converting people, right? You, there's There's got to be 
a path and there's got to be time and there's got to be understanding that we're all different types of libertarians from, you know, people who are dabbling their toes in it from the Republicans and Democrats that are just, you know, looking for a life raft at that point, right? And to the point where you're talking about constitutionalists or minarchists or even anarchists. And it's just a matter of how much time and how much work and study that you've put into tracking down what you consider to be the natural principles and natural law out there that just kind of have a, a constant classicness to them. How'd you end up in the Marines anyway? How'd that happen? <laughs> Lots of great indoctrination. <laughs> I ran off to fight right after 9-11. I honestly, I went into the recruiter's office. I think it was about the 17th of September. I had a couple of days to kind of wear with the reporting that was going on, you know, and, and how I felt. And I was like, man, I was 21 years old. I was about to enter my fourth year of college. I was like, college will be here when I get back. And if I get back, it'll be paid for. And so... I ran off to the recruiter and at that point, you know, went through my MOS training and all that fun stuff and then volunteered to go through the uh, force reconnaissance, which is at the time, it was kind of the special operations branch of the Marine Corps. So, you know, did the two-time volunteer stuff and did two deployments for those guys. So that was really just good old indoctrination is how I got to the Marine Corps. And so you didn't leave a a high-paid college pro football career behind like Pat Tillman did, right? No. No, man. And I'll tell you, you know, that, do you know all about that situation too? Only, you know, what I've heard, did he and his brother both get killed? I don't know about his brother. He definitely got killed. And yep. a lot of people think that it was a uh, friendly fire, mm. um, you know, 50 calibers and all that fun stuff. If you read through it, and it's been a number of years since I have read through it. So I won't go into, you know, what I loosely remember as specifics, but yeah, you know, that's the horrors of war, right? Is, you know, some kind of uh, quick reaction team shows up, doesn't understand what's going on. Here's firing. They're scared for their life and they're 18 years old and they start returning fire, you know, around those places. And, you know, sometimes tragedy strikes. So interesting. Gata was your gateway. That's a first on me. I haven't heard of him being the conversion, uh, the on-ramp to libertarianism, but so you're in Fallujah, you're in the Marines and you're kind of intellectual, obviously. You're reading things, you're wondering, and you're becoming more constitutionalist and then more libertarian while you're fighting. So how much longer did you have to serve with these growing um, anti-military ideas? Yeah, so, I mean, John Taylor Gatto was that push that I needed to say, you know, after seeing the horrors of what was going on, go to say, I can't stay here. And so I was in, we were in a, about a year-long deployment at that point. And from December through the end of February, that was the time I had to spend on the ground in Iraq. And you know, we left Fallujah, I think about the end of December down to Najaf, where we had had a battle earlier in the year, and began working with the ODA teams that were down there. That's Operational Detachment Alpha. It's uh, the USASOC, SOCOM guys from the Army. Green Beret for all those that you don't speak. But those were the guys we were working with down there because we were about to turn into MARSOC, Marine Corps Special Operations, after Rumsfeld said that. So I did that. I got back to the United States in March. And from March till the time I left later in the year, late that year, to get back into school and finish up my last year was probably uh, about six months. So I didn't have to do anything else overseas. And... Um, really just kind of wrote out my time on leave and everything else. So it wasn't that. So you did finish your uh, your college uh, education after you got back? Yeah, yeah. Went out to UGA and fought with my bears for uh, about a national affairs and political science and uh, 
took my degree and ran as fast as I could away from that. <laughs> so while you were still in the uh, while you were still in the military before you left, were you voicing your ideas to your fellow Marines and other people there? Yeah. So, you know, within these communities of guys that are kind of the two-time volunteers, uh, special operations type guys, a lot of times they are avid readers, especially back then. You know, you didn't have phones. You couldn't just pull things up on the internet and you had a lot of time. And so the team leaders, especially, it was just kind of a tradition. They were said, you will read this book. You will get smart on missions. You will get smart anytime you've got downtime that you know, we're not doing something, you need to be in the books. And if you didn't have a book in your hand, man, books were getting pushed to you one way or another. So it was best if you were going on deployment to bring a lot of things that you wanted to read and uh, or going on a basically a training cycle. So you'd leave for a good deal of time from home, two, three, four weeks sometimes, maybe even out on ship where we definitely didn't have internet or anything like that at that time not like what we have today. And so, yeah, you spent a great deal of time reading, shooting, lifting weights and doing things that I think a lot of people would love to do and get paid for if you didn't have to go to war. You know what I mean? And so how were you received though by your fellow um, military people uh, with your kind of views about the wisdom of these wars and interventions? So John Taylor Gatto was given to me by a fellow platoon mate, you know, a friend that was on a deployment with me. So, you know, I started bouncing ideas off of him. He was having revelations. And I'll tell you, you know, of our platoon of about 24 guys, only about six guys stuck around. And because, you know, we all shared information. We all talked. We were brothers and we could bounce things off of each other. You know, guys that were a little closer to retirement, maybe stayed in. Well, the guys that were in their first four years, man, they were like, I'm I'm done. This is it. And so it was a great crowd. And, you know, we still have differences today and we all keep up. We're, we still love each other and are involved in each other's lives and things like that. And a lot of us have gone very different ways, but it's not, we know each other, right? We know, you know, in people's, in their hearts, you know, even though we disagree, it's like, yeah, you know, we're different. We're always going to be different. We're never going to see the world, you know, 100% the same. Hell, I mean, I don't see the the world 100% the same for my wife, right? She's right. I'm not. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's it's an ongoing thing. You just got to keep at it. And, you know, if somebody's interested or they've got a kind of like a primer to be open to one of the facets of liberty, you just feed it to them. You just say, hey, here you go, man. If it's economics, here's some economics in one lesson. If it's education. Here's some John Taylor Gatto or, you know, uh, some of the, the great stuff uh, that the Tuttle twins are doing right now. I hate to say it, but, you know, if you can slip that to them, if they've got kids, right? Like that is a great pathway for some people to realize that we've done some things extremely wrong in terms of education or things that we've totally, you know, been suppressed so that we're not questioning, thinking, rational human beings that are, you know, talking about life, liberty, and property. Did you get any uh, feedback from any of them about your Senate run? and Or do you know if you even got some strong veteran support in the actual election in Georgia? Yeah, I think probably one of the things that resonates is the idea that, you know, America's tired of war. I mean, George Bush ran on not being at war overseas. Barack Obama did the same. Donald Trump did the same. Joe Biden. I mean, you look at all these guys that have gotten elected, right? The overwhelming purveying opinion in America is we have been at war for way, way too long and people need, you know, the troops need to come home. So yeah, a lot of veteran support coming out. 
you know, speaking truth about it, having kind of a moral authority. I won't say moral high ground because I don't think that exists in this space. I think anybody who's anti-war and pro-peace has got the moral high ground, but having, you know, kind of a moral authority to sit there and say, hey, no, been there, done that. I know what we're doing over there. I've seen what we're doing firsthand. And it's not for your life, liberty, and property. Look around. I mean, look at 2020 and 2019 and now 2021. Like, Things are more authoritarian than ever right now. And so it's been well-perceived. And, you know, a lot of guys that, uh, you know, were kind of the stand-up when the anthem, cover your heart, you know, all that worship the sky cloth so that it can liberty and all that kind of stuff have really had conversions as of late, especially, you know, kind of the, the thin blue line people out there starting to see that, you know, hey, it's just too much state. We've got mm-hmm. we've got to start doing real nullification. And that's, I think that's, you know, when they come back to you and you go, man, I wish I would have listened to you earlier. I wish we could have had these conversations. I wish I was open to it. What else do you got for me? And I mean, I have these conversations. I mean, more of these I get requests for than I can even handle these days. And I think that's how we know we're, we're actually doing the right thing. Yeah, I was a, uh... I wanted to run something by you. I was just at Freedom Fest in um, Rapid City, South Dakota. And it's usually Vegas, but this year it was out of Vegas. And uh, the entertainment for the kind of final banquet gala was uh, this Native American sort of rock group, which is kind of pretty popular. They're called Brulee. And it was a great show. But, you know, the, the kind of Indian chief guy that was the lead guy, he gave a couple of, of monologues during his performance. And one thing he said was he said, Native Americans are the smallest minority in the country, and they have the highest – well, first he praised the veterans in the audience, so he was sort of uh, catering to the veteran crowd. I think they're used to performing to different crowds than the libertarian crowd. And then he said something like, they're the smallest minority in the country, but they have the highest per capita enrollment in the services of any minority in the U.S. And you know, everyone clapped, or he was expecting a lot of applause <laughs> and – and I was just thinking something I've told some of my friends before, and I want to get your take on this. You know, we say that we've abolished slavery and conscription even for now, but my view is that we have unemployment caused by various state interventions, right? Uh, the minimum wage and taxation and tariffs and the business cycle caused by the Federal Reserve policy. And this unemployment hits the minority groups harder than others. And either they turn to crime and selling drugs or they go to the military to just to put food on the table. And once you join the military, you can't quit. So in a way, we have a we still have a type of conscription in the US. It's economic conscription. So what do you think about that argument? I, you know, I will always go back to the idea that when we have truancy laws and the idea that, you know, we're in, I don't know, fourth, fifth generation now of people that are in the murder cult indoctrination camps right through compulsion. A lot of times those are the prevailing paradigms that were fed from a very early age, right? It's like, listen, you know, you're going to either listen to your uncle over there who's got a a prison rap sheet for nonviolent crime, or, you know, you're going to go out there and do some possibly really terrible violence to people around the world, you know, Not that most people are combatants, even in the military. But yeah, those are some very prevailing ideas and paradigms within poor communities. And so, yeah, I guess there's partly this prison within our own minds, within our own societies that kind of perpetuate those ideas. You know, there's other choices out there for the industrious, for the questioning. But let's face it, you know, that's not what the indoctrination camps here, the youth indoctrination camps in America are turning out. They're not turning out questioning people who are fighting back. They're 
turning out these people that comply because they're scared of being different. So yeah, I wouldn't disagree with it totally. That's for sure. So you get out of the military, you finish college. And so what do you do for it? What's your day job? Oh man, um, this is what came up the other day. So I work in a space that I've been fortunate enough to travel around the world and it was tech and I work with cameras for a organization that now everybody hates. So I wish I could come out and you'll, you'll see it. If you go out there and here's the thing is I'm, I can't say it because if I say it, I violate a contraction that I have with the organization. Okay. Right. So I started running for office. I don't know. It was 2017. And I, I've changed corporations twice since then. I've been acquired twice since then. Before that, you know, three more times. So since 2013, I've had the same job, same position, doing the same thing. But I've been acquired over time. And now the big bad has bought the organization. And I'm just like, well, you know, trying to get out of that as fast as possible and trying to make this a, a full-time gig. So how did the decision to run for Senate happen? I guess I had run for U.S. House in 2018. And I ran as a Republican. You know, I thought I could use some of my skill sets, uh, you know, asymmetric warfare, psyops, and all that fun stuff to go in and disrupt the Republican Party. And turned out the Republican Party's got a lot of money and they've got people embedded. And it's a great popularity contest among Southerners down here. So after getting stabbed in the back and in the front a couple of times, I decided, you know, Libertarian Party is where it's at. Michael Heiss, especially, and Ryan Graham down here, the LP coordinator for the state of Georgia came to me and said, hey, man, why don't you show up to the convention down here in Atlanta? So I did, and they nominated me for the uh, the U.S. Senate candidate. And I told them, I said, guys, listen, I'm not going to tell you that I'm going to win this race. I'm going to tell you that I've got a full-time family. I've got a full-time career. I've got a full-time podcast. So I can use this to do some things, and um, I will see what I can do. But you know, to take the podcast and the Senate run and push it together in a, in a time where people were, you know, kind of just staring at screens for an entire year. Mm -hmm. It had a, an amazing effect on what was going on here in the state and speaking out against the lockdowns from the very beginning. There's videos out there from like I don't know, late March of 2020 where, you know, we're going down to the Capitol and wrote a new declaration of independence for, you know, the state of Georgia, you know, to do all of these things and just absolutely fly in the face of these lockdowns that ruined people's lives. Man, it was, um, it was extremely well received. And, you know, like I said before, you know, I diverted fundraising this past time around so that I could push all that money to the neighbors and local community businesses and things like that, because those were the people that needed. So we didn't spend a dime on it and still came up with like, I don't 2.3% of the vote and 115,000, yeah. I think is what it was. So it was time, place, message, and all those things. And, you know, I think, you know, probably do some justice to the great Tom Woods to mention, you know, the amount of work, the amount of knowledge that he shared with us and resources and people during that time to help us, to embolden us, you know, to speak about these things in real life to other people to kind of share that message, you know, that golly, he crushed it last year with. I, I think I found online, it was, uh, I think, 10 questions from Shane Hazel. It's one of these, uh, they asked all the candidates. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Uh, and, a few of those, yeah. 
And one of them was, how do we fix the broken criminal justice system? Yeah. And your answer was really great. It was, here's how we fix it. In the war on drugs, in qualified immunity, in police militarization, in civil asset forfeiture, release nonviolent criminals, and define crime as murder, rape, assault, you know, the typical libertarian things. And the one thing I'd never thought of before, which you have listed, is uh, harbor police officers at the precinct where they respond to those violent crimes listed above like firefighters do for fires instead of roving the streets all the time looking for traffic violations. Yeah, we're not revenue generators, for God's sakes. Yeah, I mean, I'm working here locally with a, a mayor, Stephen Miller, down in Holly Springs. He pulled over. Well, he didn't, but one of his guys my jujitsu and we're good friends. And we, I was on the phone with him at the time. He got pulled over for being black and driving a brand new off the lot Lincoln Navigator. And I was like, this isn't right, man. So I had a conversation with the chief. The chief ended up hanging up on me. And it's all, it's all on my show, Radical. You can, you can go listen to it there. But I got in touch with Steve Miller, who's also a Marine. And we are working on ending civil asset forfeiture up here now through nullification, right? These guys can take a proclamation as mayor and say, listen, officers, this is no longer our policy and we're no longer doing this. So we're going to work on that. We're going to start working on getting these guys off of the streets. And, you know, a couple weeks after we had started this, a police officer had pulled a young man over who was 25 years old for speeding. And it all ended in both of their deaths. And I went down to the press conference, talked to the mayor and told him, I said, you know, had we acted faster, this may never have happened. And now we've got a 29-year-old officer and a 25-year-old suspect that are both dead because we wanted to escalate a situation versus just give him the speeding ticket and send him on his way. Our community is yeah. not better. Yeah. yeah. Well, so you have your podcast, Radical, with Shane Hazel. So what's next for you? Any, any races coming up that you're going to consider? Uh, yeah, I've already I've kind of parlayed this tension, I guess, between Republicans and Democrats with the Libertarians here in Georgia into announcing that I am going to be seeking the Libertarian nomination for governor here in Georgia. Nice, nice. Well, I think we should wrap it up. I appreciate your time. Anything you want to promote or where can people find you? Radicalpod.com. It's kind of under construction, but you know you can tune in on any major podcatcher out there. Really, uh, that's all I'd ask for is, you know, tune in, spread the word. And I think more than anything in this time is don't tear people down in the liberty movement. Build people up. And if you can't say, you know, good things about them, don't say anything. People are going to liberty differently. We need every aspect, every person that we can get in this fight going out there and fighting and delivering the message to the people that they can reach. It's not going to be received by all, but it's going to be received by some, I guarantee it. So, I hey, I am uh, I'm tickled to death to have been here with you, and I, I thank you so much for having me on. Thanks, Lashan. Keep up the good work. Become a smarter libertarian in just thirty minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of the Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.